Wanoska, okay, we're good to go. Thank you for joining us live tonight. We're on a little bit early tonight because we changed our schedule around uh, tonight for our Bible study time. <clears throat> and we are going to uh, do something a little bit different tonight. Last week in our Life of Messiah studies, you'll remember that we began looking at the miracle of the water turned to wine. And so we discussed to begin that story last week, and in doing so, I spent a little bit of time dealing with the issue of basically alcohol and the Christian. I really meant to put a little plug on my Facebook post. That would have probably kept, you know, <laughs> there'd probably been nobody here tonight. But that's okay. That's okay. You know, it is what it is. Um, but I, I mentioned last week that I was content just to kind of move on. I kind of dealt with it a little bit, unless some of you wanted to hear more about it. And I had uh, two or three, maybe four people that approached me throughout the week saying they'd wanted me to spend another session. Uh, they were curious on this issue. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a, a night tonight for the next 30 minutes or so and deal with this. Um, again, as I mentioned last week, I, have, I know people who I would consider to be good Christians who would disagree with me in, in my position. And as I mentioned to you last week, generation ago or so, the position that I hold in opposing alcohol was mainline in multi-denominational churches. And unfortunately today, the view that used to be the dominant one is now the minority view. Uh, social drinking is an accepted practice in most evangelical churches today. Um, I know that uh, I, I, at least one of my feelings is one of the reasons that we probably will never grow numerically as big as some of the big-name churches in, in any given city is simply because of this particular issue. And having been involved not only as a pastor, but also as a deacon in, in other churches before I went into the full-time ministry, I can tell you that this is an, this is an issue um, that is confronting uh, Baptist churches as well. And so tonight, as Pastor Danny taught me, Pastor Danny, I don't know if you're listening with your pounding headache. If it is, I'm sure this is very soothing, you know. You're falling asleep. Um, now, he's probably not listening tonight. He's not feeling well. But Pastor Danny says, you know, we're going to discuss it. We're not going to argue. Uh, and certainly this topic is much bigger than 30 or 40 minutes. I have personally put in a lot of time in this over the years because I've really wanted to understand this better is a growing up in part of my years in a more fundamental independent Baptist church. To me, it was oversimplified. Um, and basically, we were just so this is wrong and this is why, and that's the end of the story. And I was never quite content with that explanation. And so I spent some time really researching this it, over, over the course of several years. I go on it and go off because I just had, I have questions. And until I can come to some synthesization, making the whole scriptures make sense, I keep wrestling with it. And this was an area that I wrestled with for a long time. Uh, I am passionate about the issue, and the reason for that is because of not only my time as a senior pastor, but even when I was actively involved in our local church as a leader uh, in Indiana, for example, when I was a deacon there in Indiana, um, I've been involved in ministry long before I became a senior pastor or a lead pastor. I, I've, I've had the unfortunate opportunity to witness the destructive results of alcohol on more than one occasion. And so if you want to know where my passion arises from, it arises from the memories that I have, even some from while I've pastored here, um, from the lives that have been destroyed and when I've had to look into the eyes of little children 
that were completely innocent victims um, it, with very little answers and for them. And so um, it is certainly a scourge on our country today. According to the National Center for Health, back in 2005, they did a survey on this and they found there were 21,000 deaths that were directly related to alcohol and that does not include auto accidents or homicides. So you, and you know, if you look at Mothers Against Drunk Driving, how many people die every year with, with alcohol-related driving incidents, that didn't include them. Uh, so also, according to the United States Department of Justice, two-thirds of all domestic abuse cases has alcohol involved. Two-thirds. There was one study that, was, that took place in a county in, in Florida where the, the records show that the, that one particular year, 90% of the domestic violence calls that they received involved alcohol. Now, I could go on and on and on, and I know I've been told that... Jennifer, are you raising your hand? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Okay. All right, this is the pastor of the church they attend while they're doing their drive-in ministry down there, correct? All right, Pastor Eager. Uh, so if you're listening online, uh, my wife let me know that our, some of our missionaries outside of our church that are serving in Columbia, uh, the church they, they partner with in their ministry with Drive-In Ministries, the pastor's critically ill and on his way to the hospital, and they ask that we pray. So we're going to stop right now. We're going to have a word of prayer, and then we'll get right back in and pick right back up there, okay? Lord, thank you for the fact we can come to pray and in prayer to you at any time. You command us to pray without ceasing. And God, I pray that as we uh, come before you, we ask that uh, the, the physical problem that, that Pastor Eater is going through there in Columbia, that you would remove it, the, the pain. And Lord, if you choose to allow it through the doctors, that whatever your will be. But God, I pray they'd be able to get to medical attention quickly and safely and be with his, his dear family and the church there and with Stephen and Ari and all those that are involved. And we're so thankful that we can come and know that your grace is available and sufficient uh, through anything that we go through in life. So we lift this dear pastor, this dear fellow laborer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you're watching, I pray for uh, this pastor, Stephen and Aries pastor in Columbia. Um, all right, back, back on this issue. So basically I could go on and on and I, I could take an entire evening and just tell you statistically, not only from what happens to other people, but there's been a lot of debate over the years about uh, resveratrol, you know, the, the element inside wine, it's, it, it might be healthy for you, blah, blah, blah. You know, th those studies go back and forth, and the, the, the more that I read it, I, I don't see there's any significant health benefit there. But the bottom line is there's a lot of negative to it. Now, I said last week on this topic, my view has modified over the years as I've tried to search out the truth. As I mentioned, when I was younger, I was just taught that every time the Bible says anything negative in, in the scriptures um, about about the about wine it was bad and if it said something positive it was just grape juice and you know i i just sometimes you grow up you just accept these things and i'm just being candid with you i do not believe that the hebrew nor the greek words would agree with that position uh i i, I do not think that that that's what the bible would be indicating there that it's always grape juice i think that's an oversimplistic view 
that just seeks to just want to not have to really deal with the real issue because this is a difficult issue. Um, plus, in addition to that, if you look at the cultural history, specifically the Jewish people, again, no Jewish person of, <laughs> of any descent would ever accept that premise. And so when you put the two together, I don't believe that is, is the, the, the simplistic way to say, you know, this is why I'm, I oppose it, because in the Bible it always, always means grape juice. I begin by saying, remember that it's important, whenever you're looking at any Bible topic, whatever it is, biblical interpretation demands, at least accurate one, demands that we avoid reading our cultural setting into the biblical Jewish and historical setting. Now, I've just explained to you that I think some of the Jewish historical setting influenced me to have to say, nah, the, the wine they're talking about in the Bible does have some alcoholic content. I don't see intellectually how it could not be. But at the same case, I think we need to look at it, as I've just mentioned, inside the biblical Jewish and historical setting. Um, one thing I began to discover was I impact, or as I began to study this that impacted my thought on this was um, as I began to just study about the whole process. Now, I don't consider myself to be, never sought out to be an expert on, you know, wine and things like that, but I felt like I needed to know something that I, that I knew what I was talking about. And today we have some processes that are a little more advanced and slowing down or stopping fermentation at certain points and putting preservatives. We have things that they did not have in Bible times. All the wine that was made in Bible times was made from a very natural process. And one of the things that many guys, the people that are not even Bible commentators, but people that know the industry is know back in that day, from the time you started harvesting the grapes, the time they squished the grapes and started getting the liquid out and mixing it together, from that very moment, the, the, the breakdown of the sugars had begun and the, the, the fermentation process began within a day or two. It, it happens very quickly. Now, you can speed that up naturally by giving more sunlight, different things, but it's unavoidable that it's going to happen. The, the point is, even in Bible days, even if you had it very early on where it was more grape juice than fermented, it probably had some level of alcoholic content in it. It just did. It, just, it was just part of the process. They, did, they had no real way of stopping that. Now, one of the things that always that intrigued me is I said to myself back in the day when I was wrestling with this, I said, okay, if that's the truth, well, then when does, when does enough alcohol in it make it qualify itself as wine? <laughs> is it when it's 2%? alcohol? Is it 3%? When, when does that, you know, nobody knows. I don't, I don't have an answer to that. I, I don't know. Um, all I know is that was the natural process of things, and that's why wine is such a broad term, and yet it did probably have, or it did, I think, have some level of fermentation. Um, now, one of the things that I, the thing that, that just confused me for many years is the fact that in the Bible, there are several, there are many occasions in the Old Testament in particular where the Bible has a lot of positive things to say about wine. Matter of fact, many people say the wine is a symbol of joy. And, I, and, I, and then it also has a lot of negative things to say. And I just couldn't, I'm trying to figure out how can it be both ways, you know. I'm just like, well, you never pray to God and say, God, I just need you to clear this up for me. I, I, I'm not going to go on the premise that you don't know what you're talking about. Why, why if, if it's bad, why isn't it just always bad? If it's good, why isn't it just always good? That would be a lot simpler for me. I don't know about you, but I, I'm a simple man. I, that'd be simpler. But it, that, that, that just is not how it is in the Bible. Now, to understand this, it, it, it's rooted in the recognition, again, of the historical setting of the biblical narrative. Um, let me begin by saying this. Today, in contrast to Bible times, you and I, we take for granted 
the plentiful supply of drinking water. Uh, our first church, our first pastorate, we used to partner with a, uh, a missionary that his whole ministry was going and building, digging wells like in Haiti and other parts of the world where they don't have available drinking water to them. And, and what a difference a well could make to an area uh, of people. It's just amazing that this, how important, and, and yet here we take that so for granted and we have many different types of healthy non-alcoholic beverages a drink. And I think the last time I preached a message on this, I, I brought up, I, up here, I had like 40 different drinks and I could have went on and on and on. You go to the place today and you go to the, you know, go to Winn-Dixie or wherever and there's a gazillion things out there you, you can drink that's, that's non-alcoholic. They did not have that. And I think we can all agree that adequate hydration is essential for life. You can go without food for a while but you don't drink any water or anything water-based. You, you don't take very long, does it? Um, and if you've ever experienced uh, sicknesses where you dehydrated, not a pleasant experience. And so it's an essential thing. And in Bible times, there were really, from what we can know in the Bible and then look back even at archaeology and even the things as present day, there was really only a few wells that were known to supply safe, drinkable water. It wasn't like they could go find a spigot everywhere and drink as much water as they wanted to drink. They didn't have that. And even if you found safe drinking water, if you put that water in, in a leather sheath or something, then you carried it around in the hot, you know, how long would it take water that was trying to be stored in like a leather pouch? How long do you think that'd stay good before bacteria in there started growing in it? And I don't know about you, but, you know, um, I have some friends of ours that are thinking of going to Mexico. Matter of fact, we have some people here that are from Mexico, but we say don't drink the water when you're in Mexico. Now, maybe down in Baja, I'm sure it's fine down there, right? Would you drink the water in Mexico? See, I have people from Mexico saying no, do not. And my, our, our Taz, Taza, our daughter, if you're listening to Taza, her and her husband went on a vacation and don't drink the water. They got really sick. And I don't know if you've ever gotten poisoning by bad water, but it is an awful experience. Well, they didn't want that in that day. Surprise, surprise. And this is why wine was a lifesaver. Its mild alcoholic content made it safe to drink and they could store it for much longer and carry it with them. Wine in Bible days, I would submit, was a necessary provision for life. Now, I'm going to prove that to you a little bit. And I could go on and on, but again, time will prohibit but let me give you a couple things, and we'll get into the Bible here in a minute, all right? But I'm going to give you some Bible. Consider Abraham. Remember when Abraham, when Lot was taken prisoner and the five kings, you know, were all taken off and Abraham went and rescued Lot and, you know, took his men, went and got them back and brought them back. And then that's when the priest of God, Melchizedek, shows up. And if you read there in Genesis chapter 14 and verse number 18, you'll be told that God says, I'm going to bring you, uh, Melchizedek says, I'm going to bring you provision containing bread and wine. It, now, was God saying, hey, I'm throwing a party because you won, you won the battle that I won for you? I, I don't think that's what God was trying to do. Now, we also find the same thing um, in terms of provision. Remember when Abigail, the, when King David, before he was king, when David was running around and he was rescuing people and kind of, he and his mighty men were, you know, they would basically were like, they'd keep you safe in your area if you, you know, and they ran, they were very faint and run out of supplies. And then he went and saw 
uh, Abigail's husband, Nabal. I think it was it Nabal? Is it Nabal? Where's my, where's my Bible scholars? Uh, Pastor Danny's sick, you know. I think it was Nabal. Anyway, Abigail's husband, he, well, I'm not going to help you out, remember? And then Abigail finally said, my husband's stupid, let me help. And so she brings him what he wanted, which was provision. And what was that provision? First Samuel chapter number 25, verse 18, bread and wine. Same principle when David, remember when he had to leave Jerusalem, when Absalom took over and rebelled and brought an army and David decided instead of just staying in Jerusalem, which would have made the most military sense, he and his mighty men fled and then Absalom chased after him and, and David and men, they basically just got up out of town and hit, hit out of town and they were running, out, they had no provisions. Remember there was one of David's friends, a man by the name of Ziba, Z-I-B-A, and Ziba met David and his men and he brought in provision including wine, and there in 2 Samuel chapter 16, you can read about it, where, where Zeba says, I brought you wine for anybody who might be faint in the wilderness. He's talking about that they were dehydrating because they had nothing to drink. And wine was the, was the liquid that could sustain life. Now, I also would, uh, you know, in any of these passages, does not mention water. No mention of it. I, I think you can put these things together. And I also don't know about you, but you ever been on one of those things? That I know some people that all they're going to drink is water. You ever been on those, some of these healthy people that, you know, my wife does this and my son will do this for the one time, that's all they drink and you've got to drink a gallon of water a day. You know how miserable it is drinking a gallon of water a day? I'm not convinced there's a whole lot of healthy benefits seeing how I'm healthier than my wife and my son. Minus my... Minus my neuromuscular disease, of course. <laughs> Take that out of the picture. Um, but I just, get, anybody gets sick of water, I'm one of those people, after a while, I'm like, I have got to have some kind of flavor. And the wonderful thing about wine, that why I believe it's identified, as we're going to see here in a moment, as a joy, is because it freed them from, even if they could get water, from the monotony of water. At least when you had the fruit of the vine, there was flavors, and they found other ways to make different mixes and stuff, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But the first thing I want you to see is that in Bible days, wine was necessary for hydration. It was essential for life. Uh, we do not have that today. The second thing I want you to consider, and I want to show you tonight, is some areas where the Bible says good things ab about wine. And if you have your Bible, you want to turn, we're going to go to several passages here in the next few minutes, and I want to show you some things. Psalm 104. If you have your Bible, Psalm chapter 104. And we're going to begin there and look at a, a, a positive uh, message concerning wine, but I'm going to begin Psalm 104. I'm going to begin in verse number 10, uh, so that you can, so that you can see the the context of this this passage. All right, Psalm 104 in verse number 10, the Bible says, "He sendeth the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field, and the wild asses quench their thirst." By them shall the fowls of heaven have their habitation, which sing among the branches. He watereth the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and the herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth and wine that maketh glad the heart of man and oil to make his face to shine and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. He, he mentions in here that wine makes the heart glad the heart of man. Now, there's some people that will take this and say that what God means here is that God gave us wine um, so that we could enjoy some kind of euphoric high. Is, is, is that the context here? God says, oh, I'm going to give you wine so you have a great party. And you have a... Did, did God think it's a wonderful thing for man to live on an alcoholic buzz? 
I don't think that's the context here at all. The context, as I read those verses to you, is how God first provides for all the animals, and he talks about the springs of water. Now, why didn't he say that for the men? It is good for the animals. Well, I'll tell you this. You ever notice how animals can drink out of the local pond and they never seem to get sick? You try that. No, I don't, I don't admonish you to, you to try that. And when we read in verse 15 that wine maketh the heart of man glad and then oil to make his face to shine, you know, to make us look better and bread would strengthen his heart, he's talking about the basic provisions and the whole passage is how God provides both for the animals and for us. And I think in this way, we can rejoice in that provision uh, that God has that we can have life-sustaining uh, hydration. Now, I want you to consider a similar idea in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. So you go forward a little bit in your Bible to Ecclesiastes, that's a... That's a long, how does that go? Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. I think that's how it goes. I know some of you are going to have to sing the song, but uh, we don't have time for that. Psalm, or Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse number 19. The Bible says, A feast is made for laughter, and wine maketh merry, but money answereth all things. Again, in the context, Solomon is saying there are certain essentials for life, and ultimately money is a really, really good thing. But he said you also need a feast, you need things to eat, and you need wine, you need something to drink, and it maketh the heart glad. Now, um, again, the, the, the Hebrew word here is the same in Psalm 104 as it is in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. I think that's significant. I think both of these are simply saying that in life we need food, we need drink, and we need economic resources. And there are many more times if is that I could take, and if you want to study it for yourself, to show that wine was a necessary staple in Bible times. All right, that's the positive. Now we're going to go on to the negative things, all right? So there's a couple things positive, and I think the positive is mainly in reference to provision and keeping us alive as a gift from God. But on the negative side, people who are not going to receive this well, and it always amazes me how this issue can get people very defensive, um, do you remember, does anybody know the very first time we find wine mentioned in the Bible? Noah. Yep. The very first time is Noah. Remember he gets off the ark and he gets drunk? Hmm. Now, I don't know. There's good Bible scholars disagree. Some people think that Noah, because it was after the flood, that the wine fermented much faster than it would have before the flood, and so he didn't analyze it correctly. Some people think so he accidentally got drunk. Other people think he had a moral failing. I find it as smart as Noah was. I I don't think he'd have been that dumb, so I think it was more of a moral failing, but good people disagree on that. But we know that then he gets naked, and then you have the sin of Ham and the curse on Ham, and all these bad things happen. It's not a good start off for the wine issue. The second time you see wine, all right, you got the first one. Anybody know the second time wine appears in the Bible? Anything alcoholic where the Bible has anything to say about it? I figured you'd get the first one, but I didn't know if you'd get the second one. No, Pastor Danny's sick again. I can't even pick on him. I like to put him on the spot. You know, you got to keep him on his toes. Um, it's, remember when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed? After Sodom and Gomorrah, before it could be destroyed, God said to Lot and his family, you have to leave. And you remember Lot's wife turned and looked back and turned into a pillar of salt, and then it was just Lot and his two daughters. Remember what happened? They were all concerned they weren't going to have their lineage, so they got their father drunk and committed incest with him and Ammon and Moab, two countries that were a thorn in the side of Israel from then on, were born. So if you 
are watching or listening tonight, and I get this a lot, I can handle my alcohol. I think Noah was a pretty godly man. He couldn't. And the Bible says even of Lot that he was righteous Lot. And he did some things, I got to believe, beyond what he ever thought he would do. Committing incest with his own daughters. So don't fall victim to the idea, well, it never happened to me. All I would tell you is bigger, stronger, more spiritual people than you have been fine for five years, ten years. But once it gets you, it gets you. I'm going to go to Proverbs chapter 20 and verse number one, which I really put as our text for tonight because I think it's a um, very instructive passage. Proverbs chapter 20, and I think we're going to be mainly in Proverbs for the rest of the night for the next couple minutes and we'll be done. Proverbs chapter 20, the Bible says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. So you're not wise. Now, I know the other side, people that I talk to say, it's just wrong to get drunk. The Bible talks a lot about drunkenness. Yes, it does, because again, in Bible days, wine was a necessary element of everyday life. So they had to draw these lines very carefully. Now, one of the things that really interested me when I began to study this that I had never considered before is like in verse number 20, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. I'm not going to do it all tonight, but again, if you want to do a study on this, go ahead. But it's interesting that there are two different Hebrew words for wine and strong drink. And as you study throughout the scriptures, you find there are two different things. Now, why is that? Well, it's because in Bible days, and now depending on what era you may have lived, but it is a generality, they understood the dangers that were there. But they also knew they needed wine to sustain life. But if that got out of hand, it could be a disaster. And I think that's, again, why we see all these warnings against drunkenness. Now, it's typical in Bible days that you could take water and you would take the wine once you begin to ferment it and at some point you would mix it with water. Matter of fact, there's some verses in like Proverbs 9, 2. There's several verses that'll talk about mixed wine. I mean, it'll say that's what, and that's what they're referring to is this process of, of mixing water into wine. Well, if, depending on how much you let it ferment and how much water you put in it could very, could make influence on how strong it was. And wine was the type that was very mildly alcoholic. They viewed strong drink as the ones that had been mixed with very little water or had been fermented to uh, its highest point. And so they understood, even in their day, the distinction between the two and why even wine can be a mocker, but strong drink, if you do that, is raging, and why you'll find that Hebrew word for strong drink uh, throughout the Bible is, is, I don't know if it's ever positively said anything of it, um, because they knew what that meant, um, and it was, it was not a good thing. So it also allowed them, by mixing water, from what I understand in my research, is that you could take water that came from what you best could tell was a clean water source, but you weren't sure, but you could mix that with a, the, a wine concentrate, if you will, and then that water was not going to be dangerous to you, because again, the alcoholic part, the, the little minimal amount of fermentation in there would kill any dangerous bacteria that could harm you. And it's a fascinating, I found that uh, a fascinating thing. So we clearly see that even in spite of the hardship of not finding safe drinking water, God uh, also still commanded at times in the Old Testament um, people to not drink wine at all. 
so now that I've explained to you the life, the context, you can see that if someone was said, you know, called to an abstinence of any kind of wine, what kind of commitment that was. That, that made your whole life issue a little bit harder. Anybody here tonight think about something in the, in the Bible where people were commanded not to drink wine? Any at all. It was in Zippo Nada. You don't remember one of the famous... All right, remember Samson? Remember he couldn't get his hair cut and he also had a Nazarite vow he wasn't supposed to drink at all? Uh, but if you took the Nazarite vow, um, they were commanded not to drink at all. Uh, there was a group of people in Jeremiah chapter 35, one of the most honored group of people mentioned in the scriptures, the Rechabites. And the Rechabites were a group of people that their whole heritage had been to refuse to drink any wine at all. And that's why if you read the story when they come into town and they're, I think they're looking for some. Everybody's offering them wine because it was the thing you did in that day for provision. But they said, no, we ain't going to do it. We don't care if that's what everybody else does. We're not doing it. Here's another one that I found very interesting. According to Leviticus chapter 10 and verse number 9, did you know that when the priests were ever going into the tabernacle to do priestly duties, they were forbidden to drink? If you're going to operate like a priest and do priestly thing, no alcohol. You see, as I studied consistently in the Old Testament, the picture is when we see someone who didn't drink any wine at all, it was a picture of someone who was fully committed to God. Now let me ask you, do you think as a Christian today that God wants Christians to be partially committed or fully committed? Don't you think that's consistent with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we put ourselves on the altar as a living sacrifice? I, I do. Um, it's a strong indicator to me that moved the needle for me on when these things I'm bringing to you came to my attention. Like, oh, okay, this makes a little sense. But I understand today, social drinking is one of the delights of life. Um, one commentator, and I, I'm not enough of a Hebrew expert, so I don't want to put my whole stake, my whole personal reputation on this one, but I found it interesting, and, and what I read from his exegesis on this verse was interesting to me. In Proverbs chapter number 23, um, verses... Uh, 31 and 32, uh, the Bible says, Look not upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, and moveth itself aright. At last it biteth like a serpent, and stingeth like an adder. I read one guy that was talking about this verse, and I had heard this verse a lot, and if you grew up in an independent Baptist background, you probably did too. This is, you know, this is Christian school chapel stuff all the time, you know. Don't the wine when it moves itself aright. You know, what I was taught was that what that meant was that the wine was particularly strong because it would move itself. Now, I still don't understand how that happened to this day, other than maybe it was real champagne bubbly stuff. I don't know. I, I don't understand that. Um, but this commentator went into the Hebrew words and did his deal. And basically what he was saying is in this whole passage here in Proverbs 23, um, for example, when you go before it in verse 29, who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath contentions, who hath babblings, who hath wounds without cause, who hath redness of eyes, they that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. In other words, adding more things in to make it as potent as you could. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red and when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. This guy was mentioning that this passage is warning the dangers of wine. And in the verse I read to you, what he's talking about there is not being fixated on the color, the fragrance, and the attractiveness of the wine. He drove this analogy, and I, I, like I said, it just made a lot of sense to me. I'm not enough of a Hebrew guy that I want to, again, tell you that I'm going to go 100%, but I think it's worth thinking about. He compared it to 
um, I'll give you an illustration. Uh, as somebody who's been, spent a lot of time on a cruise ship, one of the things that I would tell, if you're a person that struggles with alcohol, I would not recommend cruising to you because there's alcohol everywhere. Now, it is not, I'm not saying I can never succumb to that, but it's not a battle that I have currently or ever faced really in my life. I find the, the odor of it um, obnoxious and turns me off. Um, I know guys, friends of mine who battle alcohol say it's just like they can smell it and it's just a draw to them. I would tell folks that battle it's probably not a good vacation thing for you. But I, um, I will tell you, having been on a cruise ship, and especially if you go to the evening dinner, even though Jen and I would get our own table, you know, every, in the main dining room, every group of tables has their own wine steward. And it's interesting to me to watch, especially the folks that are really into their wine. And, you know, they, they, it's this whole process of they bring the wine and then they pour it and they smell it and they swirl it around and they look at it in the glass and they sip It's this whole process. And what the commentator was saying in the Hebrew here is what Solomon is warning is don't get enamored with wine. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. A lot of wisdom. And he goes on and says it in verse 30, or verse uh, 32, at last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Um, it can destroy you. Um, there's a lot more I could say, but let me bring one more thing for you to consider before I stop tonight. As I mentioned, Bible wine was only natural produced wine. In Bible times, that's all they could do is produce naturally occurring wine. And if you know anything about producing wine, if you don't, let me educate you a little bit. I, you know, I'm no expert, but I know a little bit. If you do it completely al naturel, wine and grape juice can only get to a certain alcoholic content level, about 14%. Any higher than that, and the alcohol inside the wine begins to eat itself and breaks down. So you can only naturally ferment wine so much. And even inside that fermentation, which Bible wine, best I could tell from people, again, these are not necessarily Christian people, just wine people combined with Bible commentators on this topic, is between 8 and 14%. Probably most people in Jewish time were drinking wine that was 8-ish to 10%. Matter of fact, I thought to myself, you remember back in the day when NyQuil used to be really good NyQuil? Okay, yeah, Sarah's laughing. One honest person in here. You may remember how, what percentage of alcohol that old NyQuil used to be? All the good people don't know. Jenny knows, don't you know, hon? Wasn't it 25%? If I remember right, it used to be 25%. Uh, now, all the newer ones, nowadays, it's not that anymore. They took that out of there. You know, everybody was going in the thing when, when NyQuil was on sale. They had this long line at Walmart, you know. <laughs> sorry, sorry, that's cool. But um, it, uh, it was, you know. And so I want to put it in perspective here, you know. Um, and even in the New Testament, it talks about drinking a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Again, there, there are some medicinal purposes that are, that are legitimate. Um, but there's a lot of history in the whole winemaking deal. Right? And when what I'm about to tell you began, there's some discussion on. I, I, but let's just say what we can be sure of is in the top part of the world where Israel is, we, you know, you take the Chinese and the Asian people out of the historical content. In Bible times, there really was no alcohol. Um, you say, what do you mean? Well, because alcohol, if you do an etymology study, a study of the word, is an Arabic word. 
You say, well, why is it an error proof? Well, this goes, it really goes down to alchemy, you know, where they're studying how to make, um, if I know the story right, basically some Arabs were trying to find a way to make, pull gold minerals out of like lead so they could get gold for free and by a chemical reaction. And in the process of doing that, they came across what you and I know as distillation. That didn't happen until around 800 A.D. 800 A.D., okay? Um, that's when maybe you want to play the classic still. You know, the, the, <laughs> the mountains of West Virginia or Alabama, I don't know, where they had their stills. Um, where they learned if they heated it up and condensated, they could, they could pull it out and strengthen it. And when that method was discovered, alcohol became way, 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 way more powerful than it ever was in Bible times. And one of my reasons I say that a Christian should have nothing to do with alcohol is because we have to be wise and say, I'm not living in Bible times, I'm living here and now. And unfortunately, or maybe for whatever, people today do not separate wine from alcohol in general. It's all conflated together. Wine, alcohol, beer, liquor, it's, it's all conflated. But the point I want to make very clear that I put out there for anybody to challenge, there is no comparison to modern liquor today to what it was in Bible times. No comparison. And anybody who says there is is dishonest. I'll call them out. They just did not have the technology to make the liquor that is available today in your average beer. On top of that, to me, alcohol is a poor testimony. Top of that, statistics show, and again, Barner Research and several I could give you if you want to do the study yourself. Statistics say that if you grow up, if kids that grow up in a socially drinking family are far more likely to become victims of alcohol themselves. So if you don't like it for yourself, think about your kid. Maybe you can control your liquor, but maybe they can't. We don't need it today for daily sustenance. I had one guy ask me, well, if you were on a desert island, there was only bottles of wine to drink, would you drink it? I said, well, first get me on a, bo- a desert island with only wine. But the answer to that question would be, yeah. If it was matter of life for daily hydration, yeah. But that's kind of like saying the person, oh, abortion, we should legalize abortion because, you know, people get raped and incest, which statistically is not there. Now, apparently... Obviously, that does legitimately happen. I don't know how many people, other than Tom Hanks, really get caught on a desert island for lengths of time. Um, I don't think it happens. Um, But when it comes to my testimony, my full commitment has to be to Christ. And on that basis and with wisdom, I strongly am going to continue to preach that alcohol has no place in the life of the believer. None. I'm sorry, I'm afraid a lot of Christians, they like the social drinking aspect of it. And to me, it's the clinical definition of what the Bible calls worldliness. You don't need it. And you say, well, it's hard. Yeah, I know. I, I, I wasn't always in the ministry. I spent many years working in secular companies, going to company. Uh, I worked for a property management company where we used to go to a retreat for a company meeting every year. And there was always the drinking hour. And everybody wanted me to drive them home back to the hotel. I'd tell them, no, bunch of drunks. You know, <laughs> you know, I was always this way. You know, it was always kind of this way. You think it was just now? No, I used to do it then too. But I know the pressure. 
everybody else is doing and they look at you like you're some kind of prude and then they, they get insulted. It don't, I've never seen anything else that people do that they, they take it such an affront because drinking with someone is uh, we're together, which is why the men and women that we have serving in the military, it's difficult. The pressure is strong. Now, I don't say this to any glory to myself, but Jen and I, neither one of us have ever had a drink. 58 years old, I've never had a drink. Um, glory to God, and I want to stop before I'm done tonight. I want to thank my mom and dad, who when they got saved, took the alcohol and poured it down the drain. Because I've told the story before, I was five, six years old when that happened. I knew where they kept it. In the little cabinet above the refrigerator. But guess what? I could climb my little self right up on the countertop when mom wasn't around and I could get on top of the refrigerator itself and open those little cabinet doors. I knew right where it was. And I thanked my mom and dad that they did that. Because I had grandfathers that were alcoholics. And I can promise you, knowing my personality, and you can ask Jenny, if I did with alcohol or wine, what I do with Pepsi? I'm not saying Pepsi's good for you either, but it doesn't make me drive and kill people. It doesn't make me do that. It doesn't make me beat my wife. At any rate, I thank God for it, and I don't regret drinking. Don't need it. Don't want it. The other day, an ad came on while I was on Rumble, and the ad was for a brand of vodka. And the claim of fame during the ad on this particular vodka was they advertised that their vodka had been distilled down 10 times. Think of the percentage of alcohol that is. Anyone who thinks that's okay for the Christian to do because Jesus turned water into wine misunderstands Scripture. Just... This yesterday, as I was preparing, you can go, it's on Fox News, probably still on their website now. If you're a WWF wrestling fan, one of my, he was, I don't know if he was ever one of my favorites. Back then, you, you remember Kevin Nash? Kevin, man, big dude, wasn't that? a big man. Well, a couple days ago, his 26 year old son died because of alcohol. Sad thing was, him and his dad were drinking themselves to death, and they decided to stop, and they, they stopped cold turkey. And they had been drinking so much that when he stopped cold turkey, it sent his son's heart into cardiac arrest and he died. And Kevin Ash, you read the article, said this, quote, alcohol is the nastiest. It's a nasty drug. Anybody out there, if you haven't drank, you've done yourself an incredible service. Take it up with Kevin Ash. I'm going to read you one more thing and I'm going to stop tonight. I, I picked this up back in 2012 at a time when I was really discouraged. I'm going to tell you, sometimes as a pastor, I get discouraged on two fronts in our culture. This thing before the gay marriage thing came out and we had to defend the family. But two things historically that have been discouraging to me as a pastor. When I look out at other pastors in, in supposedly Bible-believing evangelical churches, is their refusal to stand strong and true against the murder of babies in the womb. I'm amazed how many men are wimps in the pulpit, won't stand, won't even support their local pregnancy center. Going to get an amen, Whitney? It's the truth. They don't. And secondly, how many of them compromise on alcohol? When we are supposed to be the people challenging people to live a better life and set a better example. Well, I got this article, and what caught my attention, because it was written by a guy named, by a guy named Barry Cameron. And Barry Cameron is a pastor... Um, 
I don't know if he still is, of a really large mega church, eight, ten thousand people in a non-denominational kind of thing, more contemporary kind of church. Not my kind of guy per se, but I, you know, nothing against. But he wrote an article that said, "Can a Christian drink alcohol?" And in this article, he mentions two other pastors that he quotes that are pastors of large mega church, non-denom type churches. And I want to read this to you in closing tonight. Um, it talks about. Uh, remember back back uh, 10 years ago. Remember the snowboarder the, in the Olympics, the gold medalist, Sean White? He was a down snowboarder. Um, he'd been charged with public intoxi- intoxication. And so he starts his article with this. This just in, the gold medal for character enhancement, once again, goes to alcohol. I have yet to hear from anyone who drinks how alcohol, who drinks how alcohol enhances anything or blesses anyone. Max Lucado said, one thing for sure, I've never heard anyone say, a beer makes me feel more Christ-like. Fact of the matter is, people don't associate beer with Christian behavior. I've yet to see how it improves someone's testimony or makes them more, a more effective witness for Christ. Quite the contrary, like Sean White mentioned above, or Richard Roberts, Oral Roberts' son, who was arrested in Tulsa, Oklahoma, driving under the influence, the result doesn't enhance your testimony, rather it takes away from what testimony you had. Recently, a friend of mine, a former megachurch pastor, John Caldwell, wrote an article in the Christian Standard magazine called To Drink or Not to Drink. John's article explained why he has personally abstained from drinking alcohol and dealt with the bigger issue of the contemporary church becoming more and more like the world. Not surprisingly, a number of people responded to John's article and some called him to task for taking such a strong stand against drinking. In response to the responses, my good friend Ken Eidelman former president of Ozark Christian College and now pastor of Crossroads Christian Church, uh, wrote these words, which are among the very best I've ever read on the issue. I asked Ken for his permission to share them here. Quote, okay, I'm conscience bound to weigh in on this one. For a minute, forget about making a definitive case for or against drinking from the Bible. Here's the truth from logic and real life. No one starts out to be an alcoholic. Everyone begins with the defensive attitude saying, I'm just a social drinker and there's nothing wrong with it. No one says, it's my intention or ambition that someday I want to lose my job, my health, my self-respect, my marriage, and my family. Someday I want to be dependent on alcohol to get through every day of my life. Yet this is the destination at which several million of people have arrived. Why do you suppose that is? It is because alcohol is promoted and elevated as a normal, sophisticated activity in life. It is also expensive, addictive, and enslaving. People get hooked by America's number one legal drug, and just like all illegal drugs, alcohol finds its way into the body, the bloodstream, and the brain of the users. I had two uncles whose lives were wrecked by alcohol. The exception, you say? Hardly. It is what they wanted. Is it what they wanted when they dreamed of their futures when they were in their 20s? Praise God, they were wonderfully delivered in their 60s by the grace of God became real to them. And can you imagine it? They got their lives back by totally abstaining from alcohol. One of my most memorable conversations is in the state penitentiary in Jefferson City, Missouri. It was with a young man who was, 28, was facing a 28-year prison sentence for the brutal sexual assault of his own 8-year-old daughter. I will never forget the image. The tears literally ran off his chin and splashed on his shoes as he gushed. I guess I did it. I don't know. I was drunk at the time. Mm. Listen, some of those who are defensive in response to Dr. Caldwell's thoughtful and courageous article will want to revise their text if in a few years they discovered that they were able to handle their drinking just fine, but their son or daughter could not. 
answer honestly. Could you live with the knowledge that your dangerous exercise of Christian liberty factored into your children's ruin? Or if your loved one is killed someday in a head-on collision by a driver under the influence who crossed the center line, will you still be defensive of drinking? A good friend during my growing up years was the only child of a social drinking parents. When his folks were away, he would go to the basically to the bar in the basement where he developed the taste for alcohol. I won't bore you with the details. He's 65 today with a broken life, broken health, broken marriage, and a broken relationship with his only son. A broken relationship with his only grandchild and a broken career and a broken spirit. And he tries daily to medicate with the alcohol that led him to this tragic destination. I'm just telling you tonight, my dear friends, do the study yourself. Yes, do I think Bible wine had some alcohol content in it? Yes. This is why there's such strong admonition against drunkenness. But is it the comparison of what we live today? No. Does the Christian and should the Christian participate in alcohol from this pastor's perspective? And what you're going to continue to hear from this pulpit is no. Lord, thank you for the teaching of your word tonight. Lord, I pray it's been thought-provoking to many, and I pray you'd use it. Lord, I'm sure that probably be offensive to some, but, you know, that's all right. Lord, you know my goal and desire is I, I, I hurt for people um, that have been impacted by alcohol. Lord, my spirit's been crushed in the faces I will not forget. Uh, Lord, I pray that as folks consider this, what your word has to say, they'd be fair and honest with the scriptural teaching. And God, I pray that you'd help us to be people who are willing to be fully consecrated in our faith, fully willing to do whatever you require, whatever you ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for watching tonight. We'll see you Sunday. God bless you over and out.